Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. The cool fact for today's podcast is what your brain's made of. It turns out the average brain is about 77% water, 12% fat, 8% protein, 2% minerals, and only 1% carbs. This is one of those reasons that eating 70% of your diet from carbs might not be the best thing you could do for your brain. And it's also a reason you should stay hydrated. You're listening to episode three of Upgraded Self Radio. This is Dave from the Bulletproof Executive blog talking about how you can upgrade your mind, your body, and your life to levels you've never thought possible. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD+, and that helps you make energy, it helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD+, levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD Plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD Plus. It's what I use. Today, we have a great interview with Dr. Tim Noakes. He's one of the world's foremost exercise scientists and has developed one of the most unique theories on fatigue and what's really holding you back from reaching your full potential. Even if you're not an athlete, you want to hear this. Fatigue applies to us all, even cubicle dwellers who have more work than they can handle. In fact, guys like me. Fatigue is caused by the brain shutting down parts of the body before they can be damaged. This is a systems thinking approach that Dr. Noakes has, has created for his book. 
Instead of looking at, say, lactic acid in the muscles as something that causes fatigue, he's saying that the body is designed to self-regulate and that the brain is part of that challenge. He also has some really interesting comments about Tim Ferriss's recommendation in The 4-Hour Body to use an ice pack. And Dr. Noakes explains why this may or may not work as advertised. Today we have Tim Noakes, the author of The Lore of Running. He's a sports research scientist. He's the head of, of the Exercise Science and Sports Medicine Research Unit at the University of Cape Town. He's run over 71 marathons and ultramarathons. He's regarded as one of the top experts in sports efficiency and performance. He's, as I think I just said, he wrote The Lore of Running, which is one of the definitive books on running and has some extremely unique ideas. Tim, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Cool. So the thing I wanted to talk about today mostly was your theory of the central governor fatigue theory. And could you explain exactly what that is? Yeah, to give you some background, uh, when I started in exercise sciences in 1981, the theory, which was popular then and probably still is popular, is that when you exercise the reason why you get tired is because your muscles run out of oxygen or glycogen or something else, and they then refuse to work, and that's how fatigue occurs. And over the period of 25 years or so, I realized the problem with that model is it doesn't include the brain. And so in, in a, it's a brainless model. And the reality of the human condition is that the brain is there to make sure that we don't get into trouble, that it regulates our behavior and as a consequence of the research we did, it came to me that, in fact, what you have during exercise is that the brain is regulating the system to make sure that you don't run into trouble. So the central governor model simply says that during exercise, the brain is receiving information from all parts of the body, and it modifies your behavior. It slows you down or speeds you up in response to all those inputs. And as a consequence, when you finish, you finish exercise without collapsing catastrophically, as happens in the, according to the other model. So all we've done we've, is we've just said that exercise is a controlled behavior, and it's controlled by the brain, and the controls start the instant you start the exercise. The brain has already calculated what is safe for you to do under the prevailing conditions, and it then shepherds you to the finish, making sure that you don't run into trouble. So, so in a nutshell, so, that's the idea. So if somebody started having, if they were in the middle of a run and their legs started to seize up and really hurt, that would be more of a neurological uh, response by the brain to try and make sure damage did not occur to the legs? Yeah, and I'll go even further than that, that all the symptoms you have during exercise are generated by your brain. They are unique to you, and they may be completely different to any symptoms anyone else has. So we all assume that we feel the same sensations and symptoms during exercise, but that is not proven. And, and my view is that the sensations of discomfort are the way the brain regulates the performance. The symptoms are utterly, completely illusory. They are generated by the brain and they have nothing to do with the state of the body at that time. They only are related directly to how close you are to the finish. 
So anyone who's run enough or exercised enough in competition knows that your symptoms of discomfort rise as a function of how close you are to the finish. And it doesn't matter when you, whether you run 10 miles or 100 miles. When you've gone about 60% of the distance, you start to feel really dreadful and you want to start to quit. And therefore, it's not related to the exact distance you've traveled, but to how close you are to the finish. So we so, go even further so, and we think that the best athletes are the ones who make the illusion it interferes less with their running. So the less good runners, the symptoms are more illusory, they're worse, and they therefore slow you down more than the elite athletes who are not resistant to the symptoms. That's what people say. I'm a great athlete, I don't feel the symptoms. If you're a great athlete, you actually don't generate the symptoms. So would this explain <laughs> some of the large discrepancies between basically kind of what makes a pro and what makes an amateur in that their ability to hand or their ability to not produce these kinds of pain signals allows them to push their body farther and harder? Yeah, I think it starts with the other way. Because they believe they're so good and they have faith in their performance and they've learned over the years how good they are, and of course they have some different physiology, they then, during exercise, don't generate the symptoms at the same rate as the less good athlete. But let's make the point that you can't take a useless biology and turn it into a champion by changing the brain. What I'm saying is if you have people of the same biology, there are many very good athletes in the world. But the few who stand out, stand out because of the, the way they use their brains during exercise. And I always say that the difference between the best athletes and the less good, or the winner and even the second place, you won't find that in biology. You'll find that in the brain and the way the brain functions. Are there any specific studies looking at that and basically comparing the number one person to the number two person and looking at how the difference is in their biology and not finding any difference? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that if because I know marathon running best, uh, and I've studied enough marathon runners to know that if we put you in the if we took the very best runners in the world and stuck them on a treadmill, we couldn't predict whether they could run a two hundred three marathon or two hundred fifteen marathon. So, in other words, their biology would be no different from other runners who are running two hours fifteen. So that's the at the level which we can currently study. Either we're not measuring the right biology or the biology we're measuring isn't the factor, is not the predictor of the performance. And there's something else, for example, the brain. So I'm not suggesting we're not, we, there could be biological, physiological variables that we aren't measuring. But for example, people will tell you that the VO2 max, the maximum oxygen consumption, is a good predictor of performance. Well, the reality is that VO2 max values measured in the 1930s are no higher or lower than the best athletes today. So the same physiology is producing performances that are substantially better today than they were uh, 50, 60, 70 years ago. So it doesn't look like the biology has changed much in the elite athletes. What has changed is their perception of what they can achieve. 
So how does this theory explain muscle damage? Is muscle damage still a factor when it comes to fatigue during a race, like actual tears in the muscle fibers? I'm, I'm not sure. So I think we have to look at, are we talking about localized muscle tears, which would be a muscle injury? And I, I think they're neurologically based. But I'm not think that you, I don't think you consciously cause those injuries. So I think that what happens where you get a localized muscle injury, which is very common, the muscle cell itself is not deranged. The, the, the nervous system is the problem. And it causes excessive activation of muscle fibers. And they eventually go into spasm. And as a consequence, the whole muscle goes into spasm to try to protect the area of damage. And I'm convinced from my own experiences over 40 years that that's a a brain-based phenomenon. So if you tear your muscles in a 10K race and you have to stop, I think that that is not the muscle tearing because it's weak. It's because the neural mechanisms are at fault. And you need to correct the neural mechanisms. But that's, I don't think, what you're talking about. I think you're talking about a generalized muscle ache and discomfort that you develop after exercise and that lasts for a few days. And there, it's obviously most apparent if you run a downhill race. And so obviously one would ask, was it a downhill race? And if so, that would be the explanation. You weren't quite adapted for running downhill. And we know that you will have some damage. And we also know that the next time you run the same conditions, your muscles will be more resistant to that damage. So the one thing that this regulator doesn't seem to be able to pick up is that muscle damage because people will run a downhill marathon and the next day they can barely walk. So why didn't the governor stop them? And we don't know, but the answer is it can't be able to detect the damage that's happening and tell you to stop for those reasons. It doesn't seem to detect that very well. Do you think a lot of the things athletes take for granted as in bonking and that kind of thing are when you run out of energy are really just a manifestation of the brain trying to protect the body? Indeed, it's developing the symptoms. And depending on how you've over, overridden the symptoms before, and so they'll get progressively worse. So the, I used to bonk in marathon races, and I, I subsequently learned it was because I had far too high a carbohydrate diet. That was the problem. And once you're adapted to a high carbohydrate diet, you become so carbohydrate dependent that you need lots of carbohydrate during the exercise. And I discovered that the only way around that was to take in enormous amounts of carbohydrate during exercise. But in my case, the symptoms I used to get were that I suddenly would think, I can't finish this race. How can I possibly run another 10 miles? It's absolutely impossible. And that to me was the symptom that indicated I was low in blood glucose. And if I ingested carbohydrate within about five minutes, the symptoms would disappear and I would recover. So there, what was happening, as I understand it, my blood glucose was dropping or it was threatening to, to fall. And the brain was saying, okay, the only symptom that I can get you to slow down is to make you feel terrible and think that you aren't going to finish. So there was, that's one example of where the symptoms become very apparent and they seem to serve a good purpose. But as soon as you take the carbohydrate, you you the symptoms very quickly and you can speed up thereafter. Just the idea that athletes need to have a high carbohydrate diet 
is not true. So what are some of the common explanations for fatigue that you think are probably not accurate? You mentioned muscle soreness, and we've talked about bonking. Are there any other generalized themes that a lot of researchers follow that you think aren't necessarily accurate? I think it's the models that, you know, we describe models. So there are basically three models of exercise, how it's regulated. And the one is the peripheral model where everything goes wrong in the muscle itself and that stops you exercising. And that really can't explain very much because it can't explain why you choose a pace when you're exercising. And it can't explain why you speed up at the finish. Because if if the muscles really were exhausted, you'd never be able to speed up. But the characteristic of competition is that athletes speed up near the end. And the greatest athletes are the ones who speed up the most in the last kilometer or lap of the race. And if, it, if your muscles were the reason why you couldn't run any faster earlier in the race, then why can you suddenly speed up at the end? And the answer is because it's your brain is regulating the system. So the, the, the peripheral model doesn't work. The peripheral model is that you either run out of glycogen and so you run out of carbohydrates and you have to stop or you've got too much lactic acid in the muscle and you have to stop or you've got too much phosphate and so on or there's some other failure and that doesn't really explain that the models. The other one is that the, it's a brain model where the brain suddenly runs out of something or it gets too hot or the chemicals change and that also doesn't work because that's also a catastrophe model. And the brain doesn't work like that. The whole function of the brain is to protect you. For example, if you were to starve yourself, the one organ that is not affected is your brain. Your brain weight will always be the same at death if you were starving. So the brain has developed all these methods of looking after itself. And it will do everything to shut down the periphery and make you slow down in order to protect itself. And in a sense, that's the governor model, that the brain will respond to all the information that it's receiving, and it will then choose what work rate is appropriate for you. So could you take us through exactly what occurs in the central governor model, like with a runner, let's say running a marathon, and could you take us through the different stages of how this central governor theory would influence his performance? Well, first off, if you want to run a marathon, you have to think about it for a couple of months. So it's a lovely old statement. You know, if I said, let's go and race 10Ks tomorrow, you'd be there. If I said, let's go and race 15Ks, obviously, sorry, I must give you the distances in American terms. If you were going to run six miles, you'd say, sure, no problem. I'll, I'll meet you tomorrow, tomorrow and we can race tomorrow morning. If it was 10 miles, you'd say the same. If I said 20 miles, you'd say, actually, I don't think I can prepare myself mentally overnight. And if I said it's a marathon, you say, no, 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 I can't go out and race it tomorrow. I've got to have two months to prepare for it. And much of that preparation is mental. And so the race I used to love was the 56-mile Comrades Marathon. And it would take me two years to prepare for that. I could only ever do it every second year. So it would take me a year to get over my previous effort. And then it would take me a couple of months to think, okay, I can start training properly for it. And then I would train flat out for six months and run it. And that would be my mental preparation. And of course, we thought it was physical preparation, but I don't think it is. So for the last two months, you're preparing mentally for this race and you start to visualize it. And that's your brain getting ready to push you and accept the discomfort that you're going to go through. 
And then for the last three days, you're going to sleep more and rest more because your brain needs a chance to store something. I don't know what it is. So that when you get really tired near the end of the race, you're going to be better. The only marathon I never finished was, was when I was doing my internship in, in medicine. And we were, run, we were working 100 hours a week. And I just had a Saturday morning off. So here we were working. We probably were sleeping every second or third night. We weren't sleeping every night. And I reached 20 miles in the race. And I just said, that's it. I can't be bothered. And it was the only time I ever quit in a race. And I have no question that it was because my mental preparation just wasn't there. And I was just so exhausted from working so hard in the hospital that I couldn't do it. So those are the facts. So then you start the race and you've got your mind's right, then it's prepared. And then you, it, it, how important is the race for you? You see, is this, uh, oh, it's going to be a training race? Or is it be, be a race where I'm going to try and do as hard as I can? Or is it going to be, or is it the Olympic marathon? And depending on that, your motivation will be different. And what then happens is that, in my view, the brain has already worked out how fast you're going to run for the whole race. And it starts your symptoms of discomfort, which we rate as the ratings of perceived exertion. And as you go through the race, there's a, a linear increase in these ratings. So the exercise originally feels moderate or moderately hard, then it becomes hard, and then it becomes harder, and then near the end it becomes very, very hard, and then it becomes extremely hard, which would be a rating of 19 on the Borg scale of the rating of perceived exertion. And that's the characteristic that happens. Now, what's interesting is that this is a linear function of the distance, but I doubt that everything in your body is changing as a linear function of how far you've run. So what inputs to set that rating of perceived exertion is, I, I really don't know. And in our view, it's, it's set before you start by some sort of expectation that the body has set for the race. So it would be easy to say that as you get hotter, that explains why your rating of perceived exertion rises it would be easy to say that as you become more dehydrated, that causes your rating of perceived exertion to rise. Or as you run out of glycogen, that causes the rating of perceived exertion to rise. The only problem is that the rate at which RPE rises is set right from the start of the race, when none of these things has changed very much. So it can't be those variables. So it's, it's mystical as to what is determining the symptoms that you develop during the race. And my conclusion is that it's got something to do with your expectation that you've developed over the years. And the brain has, uses that to set the rate at which the sensations of discomfort will rise during the exercise. A book called uh, Run by Matt Fitzgerald. He talked a lot about performing workouts that increased your confidence versus workouts that necessarily increased your muscles ability to perform workload and that kind of thing and that basically sounds what you're talking about basically training your body to respond differently to forms of stress is that what you're saying yeah i think you know matt uh he he definitely advanced the theory because we'd never said that and and he interpreted it quite correctly i think that what you're trying to do when you train is run faster that's the key you're not trying to change your VO2 max or whatever, whatever, or your anaerobic threshold. That's not what it's about. It's about running faster. 
And he said that you have to train yourself to run fast and become confident at it. And when I read that, I realized that's exactly what we do do. And I remember, because the first sport I did was rowing, uh, or called crew in the United States. And that's exactly what we did. We just taught ourselves to row faster. And it was over. We used to race 2,000 meters, but we taught ourselves to run race faster over 500 meters. And you would just get your brain around the concept that actually you could row faster. And eventually you put that into 1,000 meters and then into 2,000 meters. And we weren't training to say, oh, my VO2 max has gone up. We were always racing the clock. And I think that's the reality, that you, you want to run faster. So you must train and get your body to realize what it feels like to run at the faster paces. And eventually you will have the confidence that you can run faster. And a lot of the running that we do is at low pace and endurance running, which really doesn't do that. And, and certainly one of, the variable, one of the findings I've learned in our research and both from my own experience is that when you get near the race, you really have to start doing interval training. And very quickly, with using few intervals, your performance can go up dramatically. And that's what is surprising, that, that eight hard sessions of interval sessions will improve your performance dramatically. And in my view, that's got nothing to do with physiology, but it's got everything to do with adapting your brain to accept that actually you can run faster without damaging it. The rating of perceived exertion that most people think of as kind of primitive and that kind of thing, and I think a lot of coaches are moving towards heart rate training and power training and those kinds of metrics. Do you think perceived exertion is still a fairly good representation of how hard you're working? No, it's not, because it's a measure of how close you are to the finish. Mm. That's the key. You see, the rating of perceived exertion was started as a measure of your intensity. And it's not. The heart rate is a much better measure of intensity. And it's very reproducible. The if you train regularly at the same heart rate, you know, you'll be doing the same, roughly the same intensity. So if you want to know your intensity, the heart rate's really a very good measure. Whereas rating of perceived exertion doesn't tell you your intensity because it rises the longer you go on. So if you run at the same intensity, your rating of perceived exertion will rise. And therefore, it's not related to the intensity. It's related to how long you can keep going at that pace. So that's what the information you get from the rating of perceived exertion is, how long can I go at this pace? So how can people improve their resistance to fatigue? You mentioned mental training and mentally preparing yourself before races. We talked about intervals. Is there anything else people can do? Develop self-belief. <laughs> hmm. And have a coach who tells you you can do things that you don't believe you can do. So I think that's the key, that... How do you know how good you are but the coach tells you? So all the great coaches, why is it in the United States or in any country that there are a few iconic coaches? In whatever sport it is, be it American football or baseball or track and field, that there are only a few iconic coaches who can get the best out of their athletes. And, and their success in part is because the, the, the athlete believes the coach cares for them. But let's put that aside. It somehow the coach understands how good this athlete is and, and pitches the challenge to say so it's appropriate for that athlete. I always think of Jim Ryan, who was one of my great heroes, who was the first schoolboy runner to run 
a sub four minute mile. And he tells a story that he started running at 13. And at the age of 15, the coach calls him in and says, Jim, what can you think you can run in, in two years time? And he says, oh, I have no idea. Maybe a 4.10. And his coach says, no, Jim, you can run a sub four minute mile. And he says, you're crazy, coach. There's no way I can do it. Two years later, he runs a sub four minute mile. And if the coach hadn't said it, it wouldn't have happened. But the point, of course, is that the coach can't go and tell everyone in the club, you can all run a sub four minute mile. He had to know that Jim Ryan was one athlete in a billion who could do it. But he spotted the brilliance in the young man and could then set the target that was appropriate. But if he hadn't set the target, Jim Ryan would have thought he was a 4.10 miler and not a 3.59 miler. So the coach is crucially important in setting the standard and showing the athlete that if he believes strongly enough, he'll be able to do it. So positive reinforcement is one of the big parts of this, it seems, and making getting positive feedback from your coach. Could the opposite also be true about trying to avoid negative influences on your psyche and avoid people that kind of tear you down? Like when you're talking about, yeah, I'd really like to run, you know, um, a 430 mile at this race, and one of your friends is like, oh, you'll never do that. Is it good to avoid people like that, at least before a race? You have to absolutely avoid those people, or else you, you – because – I was looking for a quote on that very topic recently, and I was reading a, a, a rowing book uh, in which the guys, it's the Oxford and Cambridge boat race, which is the same as the Harvard-Yale boat race. They race the same distance, about four miles, which is amazing because most races are over, are over one and a half miles or 2,000 meters. And so, but you have to keep the same intensity for four miles that you normally keep for a mile and a half. And the one guy said, you have to believe that you can do it before you start. And then he said you have to overcome all the negative impressions that you've had from your coach and everyone else, implying that you actually can't do it. And I found that interesting because you shouldn't be in an environment which is negative. That's not going to help you. You have to believe. And the only way you're going to learn to believe is if you, people will, will support you and then you start to achieve. I guess there are some people who negative motivation does help. They say, I'm just going to prove you wrong. But for many people, that doesn't work. You've got to have the support of the, of the coach and to believe the coach. So how have your views on the central governor theory evolved over time? When you first started learning about this, you were probably still following the already preconceived notions about fatigue. So how did your kind of involvement in this develop over time? Well, I think it really started in 1981 when we started our research. And, and what happened was we started doing VO2 max testing in athletes. And we were told that you will always find a plateau. In other words, the oxygen consumption will rise as you make the athlete exercise harder and harder and harder. And then suddenly there will be no further rise. And so the athlete will continue for a minute or two on the treadmill but his or her oxygen consumption will not rise one milliliter, one milliliter higher. And as a consequence, you show this plateau, and what that means is that the heart's no longer able to provide more oxygen to the muscles. The muscles become anaerobic. The anaerobiosis then causes lactic acid production. The lactic acid shuts down the muscles. Our problem was we couldn't find this in the majority of athletes. 
But at the time in 1981, if you wanted to publish a, a study of the VO2 max in athletes, you had to write. In 100% of athletes, we saw the plateau phenomenon. So we had the choice. You either lie because we didn't see it in 100% of athletes or we find out what's going on. And I said, okay, in those athletes who don't get a plateau, my view is they don't show an oxygen deficiency. And then we started testing athletes and found that the VO2 max was a dreadfully poor predictor of performance. So I could get two athletes with a VO2 max of 70 and one would be running a three-hour marathon and one would be running a two-hour 20 marathon. So I said, but if oxygen consumption is so important, why can't this person with a VO2 max of, of, of 70 also, and he's running three-hour marathon, why can't he run a two-hour 20 marathon? And then we started, we started looking at some of the best athletes that we had in South Africa at the time, and their VO2 maxes were 73, 74. It weren't fantastic. And as I've indicated, we measured values of 74 in other runners who were doing two and a half hours. But then we noticed that the key predictor of their performance on our testing was how fast they ran on the treadmill during our test. So, for example, the test protocol was that we would start the treadmill at, say, 12 kilometers per hour. That's, let's say it's about eight miles an hour. And then we would speed it up one kilometer an hour every minute. And what we noticed was the really elite athletes were able to reach 25 kilometers per hour. In other words, they were running sub-four-minute mile pace. And they would sustain that for two minutes at least on the treadmill, having already run for 10 minutes at progressively increasing speeds. And we noticed that that was the predictor of their performance. So the speed they reached on the treadmill was the predictor of their performance. And it was very, very good predictor. And if you couldn't reach 25 kilometers per hour on that treadmill under those test conditions, you'd never run a four-minute mile and you'd never run a 208 marathon. So that, those were the data. And then I said, well, there's something in the muscle that's determining this. And maybe these athletes have super powerful muscles. And it's got nothing to do with oxygen. And at the, that was the hypothesis at the time. And then only later did I realize that, in fact, they have to have super powerful muscles. And you never taught that. But Haile Gebri Selassie, I can tell you, his muscles must be as powerful as the most strongest weightlifter in the world. Because when his foot's on the ground, to run faster, his foot must be on the ground for a short time. And to run faster his foot must be on the ground for an even shorter time. So he's got a few milliseconds to generate enough force to, to bounce him forward three meters through the air. So he's got no time to do that, and you can only do that if you've got very strong muscles. But more to the point, what I realized is that the amount of muscle that you recruit must be very important because when you're running, you don't recruit 100% of all your motor units in your muscles you only recruit a proportion of the muscle mass. And for example, near the end of the marathon, you're probably recruiting only 40% of your muscle. And so I began to realize that if you wanted to be a great runner, just by recruiting 43, 44, 45% of the muscle and also making the muscle very powerful would make you a better runner. And those things are related to the brain, not to oxygen delivery to the muscle. And then I suddenly realized, you know, the major characteristic of humans is that they can exercise 
without killing themselves under extreme conditions of heat or altitude. And then I realized the brain must be there to regulate and make sure you don't run into trouble. So that was the final realization that sort of uh, finally brought the whole model together. So you talked about making the muscles more powerful. Would things like plyometrics and weight training help with that? Absolutely. We don't do enough of it. And, uh, I mean, there are older runners in this country who will tell you that by just lifting weights and particularly doing eccentric loading of the calf muscles, you can get by with much less training uh, for in ultramarathons. And I also know that uh, Bruce Fordyce, who was the great South African ultramarathon runner, won the Comrades Marathon nine times. He really became good as a downhill runner when he started to do a lot of eccentric loading of his quadriceps muscles. So, yes, you have to do weight training for your muscles of the lower leg if you want to be a really good runner. It also boosts your confidence. So it seems like it's coming at this from two sides. You're both strengthening the muscles, which allows you to produce more force, and then at the same time you just feel more confident because you've been doing weight training. Do you think that could be part of why it helps? Yeah, exactly. What you're referring to now is a potential placebo effect. In other words, if you believe something, it will make you go better. And that's the reality. There's a massive placebo effect in everything we do. And uh, Franz Stumpfel, who coached uh, Roger Bannister to become the first sub-foreman at Mahler, said exactly that. He said, training is an act of faith. You have to believe. And I couldn't understand that for 50 years because we were teaching the reason why you run fast is because your VO2 max goes higher or your heart gets stronger. How could it be changing your belief systems? And I absolutely believe the placebo effect is that if you believe your training is going to make you better, it will. And conversely, if you don't believe it's going to help, you don't do it because it's not going to help. So that training, if you believe that the weight training is helping, it is going to help and it could have a substantial effect. Could that be true that for other true? activities as well, such as shaving your legs before a race or wearing certain clothing and that kind of thing? Could that also provide a placebo effect? Exactly. Anything that you believe will help, will help. And we showed that years ago, interestingly, with carbohydrate ingestion, where we did studies where we gave placebos to people and told, they were, told them they were taking carbohydrate. And then sometimes we would give them carbohydrate and we would mask the taste and we would say, no, actually, you're not getting an active carbohydrate. And they always did best when they were given carbohydrate and they believed it was carbohydrate. But when they were given water with a, a taste added so that it tasted like carbohydrate and they were told that it was carbohydrate, they performed almost as well as when they got carbohydrate and believed it was carbohydrate. And the placebo mm. effect is enormous. Wow. Yeah. Are there any other good examples that you can think of of the central governor theory in action? Any major studies that really stand out to you? The, I've written an article in which we review this, the, the whole basis for it. There are about 50 studies, at least, which you can only explain on the basis of the central governor. And the central governor model, then, the first thing is that the brain, you could influence the brain directly and influence performance without changing anything in the periphery. And there are about 30 studies that show that. And let's just off the top of my head, one of them is if you ingest carbohydrate acutely, within seconds your performance goes up. 
So if we're measuring your force output of your muscles and we give you glucose by mouth, within seconds, your performance, you can pick up a heavier weight. And that can't be because the glucose has been absorbed. It's because the glucose is acting on your tongue and the back of your mouth. And the brain is then picking up information that this is beneficial to you and your performance goes up. So you can't explain that any other way. Another interesting one is if you give people who are getting cramps salt. So you give them uh, pickle juice, for example. The cramps are much more likely to go away if they drink pickle juice. The only problem is the cramps disappear long before the pickle juice gets into the circulation. So again, it's a central effect through the brain. And this people, of course, gets con- get confused. They say, well, it proves that, that salt deficiency causes cramping. And not at all, because the salt didn't even get into the bloodstream before the cramps were broken. So those are a couple of examples. The other one is the amphetamine effect, that the, the most effective drug that aids performance is our amphetamines. And they're unavailable today in the forms that they were available in the 1950s. And the athletes in the 1950s who took these amphetamines were at great risk of getting heat stroke because if they exercised in the heat, they would block out the feedback from the the body telling the brain that it's too hot. And there are many famous cases. Uh, Simpson, the British cyclist who died in the Tour de France on Mount Ventoux, he, he was taking amphetamines on that day, and he drove himself to death or cycled himself to death. But he'd raced many, many times under hot conditions, and it had never happened. So there the amphetamines are acting in the central government and blocking out the central government effect. And they're the very dangerous drugs because they, then you override the governor and develop heat stroke. Now, along those lines, uh, if you remember Paula Ratcliffe in 2004 in the Athens Marathon, she, she stopped running at, 24, uh, at 34 kilometer, 36 kilometers, and, in, and she was paralyzed because she said, I couldn't put one foot in front of the other. She didn't say I was tired and I would walk to the finish. The reality is she was going to be paid a million pounds if she finished the race, and she didn't finish it. So all she had to do was just walk to the finish, and she couldn't because she was paralyzed. And in my view, what happened was her body temperature got to 42 degrees centigrade, and the brain said, that's it. If we don't stop you now, you're going to get heat stroke. So we're going to stop you, and you have to sit on the side of the road and wait until your temperature's gone down. And that was a classic example of the central governor stopping her running in order to make sure she didn't develop heat stroke. And this, of course, was in the greatest race, on the most important race, which... As I've indicated, not only could she win a gold medal, but she could also uh, win a million pounds. So she had every incentive to finish the race, but she couldn't because her brain stopped her. And just make, to make the point, the reason why it stopped her was because she had accumulated heat too rapidly because she was too big. She weighed 52 kilograms, and she couldn't run at her chosen pace under those conditions and lose all the heat whereas the Japanese lady who beat her weighed 40 kilograms. And only at 40 kilograms can you run that fast and not accumulate so much heat that it eventually stops you. Could the pressure of the race also have influenced her performance? As you said, she was getting paid a million pounds. It was at, you know Athens, kind of the birth of the marathon, and, a, and it was in the Olympics, and it was the gold medal race. 
Could all of that have really played on her mind in the days preceding the race, and maybe she started contemplating what would happen if she didn't win, and that could have negatively influenced her performance? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think that she's one of the, she's one of the greatest athletes of all time. So that, and I think she was well prepared for the race, although she hadn't done enough heat training. But besides that, it, literally, if the temperature had been two degrees light cooler, she would have won the race, and she wouldn't have developed the condition. But let's get back. If you just, if you read what she describes, she says, "I felt terrible from the start." Now she interprets that to mean that she wasn't really pre- properly prepared for the race. But according to the central governor, the explanation is simple, that she was overriding what her body was telling her. Her body was saying, slow down, slow down, slow down. You can't finish if you keep running at this pace. But she overrode it because she couldn't understand why she couldn't run to this, next to this other athlete who she perceived to be a less good athlete. And that's the reality. The Japanese lady was three or four minutes slower under cool conditions. And so Paul had every reason to believe that she should have been running away ahead easily, but she didn't understand the, the biological problem. But the point was her body was telling her, slow down, slow down, slow down, and she was overriding it. And when you override it, then you get these symptoms, and it just feels terrible. And, and so that's what happened. It wasn't necessarily – sorry, it was because she wanted to win so badly that she forced herself to run because – but she couldn't run slower or she wouldn't have won, and she knew that. Now, we've talked about exercise. I'd like to talk a little bit about how the central governor theory might be used in regular everyday life, specifically, let's say, with sleep deprivation. So if somebody, let's say, slept for only five hours a night and then woke up the next day and wanted to – or I think the Tour de France would be a good example. These riders at times have to sleep for very small amounts of time and then get up and – ride over 100 miles the next day at incredibly high speeds. Do you think a large part of their ability to do that is just the fact that they've convinced themselves that it's possible? Well, exactly, and they don't use it as a negative. So to be a great athlete, you have to obliterate the negatives and not use them as an excuse, as the rest of us would. So the rest of us would say, oh, gee, you know, I didn't sleep enough last night, so clearly I'm not going to perform well. And then that sets what the performance is. So I believe very strongly that the outcome is what you believe it will be. And you then use these symptoms as an excuse or as an explanation. So, gee, I didn't feel good during this race. No wonder I ran so poorly. But the reality is that you generated those symptoms yourself. And they are therefore used to condone what you did or to justify what you did. And I, I have this really interesting explanation for why does an athlete come second, and particularly if it's a close race. And in my view, the athlete who comes second justifies the performance by pr- producing symptoms which are more severe than they really need to be. So, you know, it's, oh, gee, the symptom, I really tried my hardest, but my, I was exhausted. Well, in fact, that's a justification And if you understand that those symptoms are generated by yourself, you realize how you could influence the outcome by believing you want to be more tired than you really are. Could that work with other people too in like everyday settings? I know a lot of people will say things like, oh, like if I don't eat for in another four hours, I'm just going to be lose all my focus and I won't be able to concentrate and that kind of thing. Do you think a lot of that is, again, they've just kind of entrained that belief that if, no, let's say they don't have a snack or something, they're going to 
get hypoglycemic or tired, do you think overcoming that in their own minds could also be beneficial and an example of the central governor theory? Well, that, you're talking about negative placebos now. Mm-hmm. That's the opposite to a placebo. They are setting themselves up for failure. I, I, can't ex, I can't explain enough that what you believe is what the outcome will be. That's how the brain functions. And if you believe something enough, that's what the outcome will be. So how can you possibly, when you go out and run, when you've got all these thoughts, actually, I'm not going to perform well today. How can you perform well under those conditions? You absolutely can't. And of course, the old argument will, is, well, the muscles are determining it, but that's not the reality. It's your motivation that's driving you through the central governor. And if your motivation is low when you start and you're explaining why you're not going to perform well, well, the only thing the brain's going to do is going to, it's going to do exactly as you want it to do and you're going to underperform. And the great athletes are the ones who never, never, ever think like that. Or if they do think like that, they switch it off immediately and correct their thinking. And I, I'm sure you've, you've dealt with some astonishing athletes in your time, but I've met you know, the very, very best are different. And Mark Allen was one of the guys, the, the great triathlete, who was to me one of the great athletes I ever met. Paula Newby Fraser was another one because I helped her. She was a South African before she emigrated to the United States. And, and they didn't conceive that defeat was possible. That, that's it. You know, when they went to the start, and Mark Allen had to learn because he lost the Ironman six times before he won it. But, but once he won it, he went, didn't go to the race believing he could, win, he could lose. And Paula was the same. She didn't believe she could lose. That's the difference eventually. They have such strong self-belief that when they're running, it, the thoughts of failure just don't, don't come into their heads. I'd like to talk a little bit about some kind of weird and a little wacky examples of the central governor. One of the things I read about that you discovered was something called anticipatory thermogenesis. Could you explain what that is? That was with my good friend, Lewis Pugh, who, who swam at the North Pole, swam one kilometer at the North Pole in his Speedos and uh, with a cap on. And goggles. So he was completely naked apart from the Speedo. And uh, what we noticed with him was that before all the swims that we did, whether we did them in Cape Town in an ice bath or at the North Pole, that in the last half hour or so before the swim, he would start to heat up and start to sweat. And when I was dressing him at the North Pole in ice cold conditions, he was actually sweating. And that was because his temperature had risen from the normal of 37 degrees centigrade or 98 degrees Fahrenheit, and it had risen by about 2 degrees Fahrenheit. So it went up to, in fact, it was more, it was more like 3 degrees Fahrenheit. So it went up to 38.4 degrees centigrade. And uh, that made a huge difference to him because that extra degree allowed him to swim for about 10 minutes longer in these very cold waters. Now, are there examples of this happening? Yes, there are. The, there are certain bird species in, in Cape Town and elsewhere. And the one is the penguin, which is a very big fat bird. And when it goes out and swims in cold water, it doesn't heat up before. But there's another diving bird called a cormorant, which is very, very thin. And you can tell when the cormorant is about to go out and start fishing and diving for fish because its body temperature rises and when it's gone about two degrees higher than normal, then the bird will leave the nest, 
and fly out and go and start fishing. So that's the anticipatory thermogenesis, and it has a role in that it allows the birds to, to dive for more fish before they get cold and have to stop. And the same with Lewis Pugh. It allowed him to swim for an extra 10 minutes at the North Pole, and that 10 minutes allowed him to finish the one kilometer. There are other very famous examples of Tibetan monks who use this, and they taught themselves how to do it. And so you can put a, an, a wet, ice-cold towel on the back of a Tibetan monk overnight, and they will generate enough heat to dry that blanket or that towel overnight. And that's a well-described phenomenon. So probably many people can do the anticipatory thermogenesis but if you want to be a long-distance swimmer, it certainly would be helpful if you can do it. One of the uh, people we've talked about is Tim Ferriss. And what, he's this kind of biohacker, entrepreneur guy. He's a very interesting guy. And he, one of his recommendations for weight loss and fat loss is to put ice packs on your shoulders to increase your body's thermogenesis and fat burning. Do you think that is an effective or could be an effective method? And it, do you think it might be explained by the central governor theory? I know Tim quite well. He actually came to South Africa and we did some tests on him and helped him with some things. Uh, the reality of, of weight loss and weight control is that if you do those use those mechanisms, the body will compensate and you'll either eat more or you'll do less exercise. So the body is a homeostat as far as its body weight goes. And that is also a central governor mechanism or a go sorry, a governor mechanism, but it's related to activity and food consumption. And, and where all of the advice on nutrition fails is because it doesn't include the brain in the models. So you have to put the brain in. And the brain acts through appetite. And if you want to lose weight, you have to get the diets that will satiate you and allow you to eat fewer calories. And for many of us, the only diet that will allow that to happen is a high-protein, high-fat diet. And that in contrast, a high-carbohydrate diet stimulates appetite and stimulates overeating. So Tim would be better advised to tell people to look to their nutritional and their macronutrient composition of the diet. And if you want to lose weight, and if you're a runner, eating a high-carbohydrate diet will prevent the weight loss. All that happens if you're eating a high-carbohydrate diet, you can run all day and all night and you'll simply eat more and you'll never lose weight. If you want to lose weight and run, you've got to change your diet and reduce the carbohydrate content. And then the brain becomes the better controller and it allows you to do more exercise without stimulating your appetite to eat more. And you'll eventually reach a steady state depending on how much carbohydrates in your diet. If you want to then reduce further, you have to reduce the carbohydrate content of the diet further. So that's the real information you need if you're an athlete. The brain is absolutely involved in the regulation of your body weight. You can't fool it, but our human biology is that what does fool it and disturbs it and makes it unable to regulate your weight is forcing it to eat more carbohydrate than your body can tolerate. And that's because we evolved as hunters and our gut is designed to process protein and fat and the liver and the rest of the body is not, process, is not designed to process glucose rushing into it from high-carbohydrate meals, particularly refined carbohydrates. 
That's what the body can't cope with. The fact that there are athletes like the Kenyans who can survive on a 75% carbohydrate diet doesn't change the reality. They are genetically different and they are a, are a small population, or sorry, the runners are a small population who can comp cope with a high carbohydrate diet. But for many of the athletes I deal with who, whose body mass index is a little bit over 25, it's like 27, 28, and they do all this training and they can't get their weight down and they wonder why. So they say, well, I must run more. They've got to change their carbohydrate composition of their diet. And as soon as they reduce the carbohydrate content, their weight will come flooding off. Speaking of tricking the brain when it comes to weight loss and using the central governor theory for that kind of thing, Dave Asprey eats about 4,500 calories a day and or between 4,000 and 4,500. He, he hasn't done exercise for like two years and he's still pretty lean. Do you think, and he eats a modified paleo diet that's very high in fat and protein and very low in carbohydrate. Do you think part of the reason he's able to do that is his body is adapted to a larger caloric intake? Yeah, that's a very high caloric intake. Yeah. Um, it's twice what I eat. So, <laughs> and I'm 85, 84 kilograms. So, so I don't know what his weight is, um, but that's a huge intake. And so the prediction would be that he'd have to be doing three or four hours exercise a day to, to balance that up. So if he's not doing three or four hours and he's balancing his nutrition on that, then it's really interesting. But if you're not eating carbohydrates, you know, the theory is you can afford to eat as much as you like of protein and fat. But I would predict, and I don't know what if he's changed his diet, I'd predict that if he was eating 4,500 calories of which 50% was carbohydrate, he wouldn't be able to maintain his body weight on that. I, I mean, the whole theory of the high-protein, high-fat diets is, in fact, you don't have to restrict. You can eat as much as you like, and you don't put on weight. And that it's the, that it's the carbohydrate content that drives your weight up. One of the other interesting theories is the theory of food reward, and it's one that's been become, becoming more popular. It's basically been put together mostly by a guy named Stefan Guillenet, he writes at a blog called wholehealthsource.blogspot.com. And they, what he found and what they found in past studies, I think there were some studies in the 1950s where they had these people eating diets that were, had no stimuli whatsoever. They were bland, like they were drinking out of these like liquid tube things that had no flavor, no texture, no smell, no color. And what they and they put obese people on these systems. And after I think about four, it was four weeks or four months. But either way, the people were eating like two to three hundred calories a day, and they said they felt completely satiated, and their weight continued to drop and everything. So their metabolism wasn't slowing down. And the idea is that these the stimuli in the diet, like super satiating foods. And these refined foods raise the level which the body likes to maintain body fat. And by removing those, it tricks the brain into trying to lower its own body fat. Have you heard of those? No, I haven't heard of that theory. Um, but I mean, if that's what they found. But, but again, I would guess that they were low-carbohydrate diets. So mm. to, to me, mm -hmm. the, the easiest explanation for obesity is that it's a, it's a function of how sensitive your fat cells are to insulin and how sensitive to insulin your muscles are. Uh, sorry, to glucose and insulin your muscles are. If your muscles are highly glucose sensitive and insulin sensitive, 
when you take lots of carbohydrate, you'll distribute that into the carbohydrate reserves without requiring much insulin. And so you won't grow fat. The problem arises is if you have resistance of the muscles to take up the glucose and the insulin, and so you over-secrete insulin. And on top of that, you have fat cells which are highly sensitive to insulin. Because in the face of glucose and insulin, the fat cells, if they are sensitive, sensitive, will simply just grow and become huge. And there's something about repeatedly stimulating these fat cells with glucose and insulin that makes them get bigger and bigger and bigger. And that makes you hungry and want to eat more and also to become physically inactive. So, so in my view, the simplest understanding of obesity is how sensitive your fat cells are to glucose and insulin. And if you have very sensitive cells, fat cells, you will become obese if you eat a high-carbohydrate diet. If you have cells that don't respond to glucose and insulin, if you have fat cells that don't respond to glucose and insulin, you can eat all the carbohydrates you like and it will not have any detrimental effects on your fat stores and then because of that on your health. So I think the individuality of the response to diet can be explained almost, well, again, let's say not almost entirely, but a large portion of it can be explained by how sensitive your fat cells are to glucose and insulin. Cool. Thank you very much for uh, talking about this, Tim. So if people wanted to learn a little more about you, are there any books or anything that you would recommend they check out or any websites? Well, thank you for asking, but uh, the obviously Law of Running tells you a little bit. Uh, but my scientific autobiography is coming out in, in three weeks' time. And that's a history of all the ideas that we've developed and tested and the reasons behind them. And the book is called Challenging Beliefs. So it's going to be published in, in South Africa, in, in three, released in three weeks' time. So that'll give people an idea of what, who I am and why I think as I do. And then in June, July next year, uh, I've got a book coming out called Waterlogged, and that is a history of the changing advice athletes have been given about drinking during exercise and the, so, the role of dehydration and so on in performance. So we're hoping that that's going to be out in, in June next year, but it's a lot of work to get it out. And then finally, uh, the, you could check the website of the Sports Science Institute of South Africa, and that's where I work. And there's, we have a website there which, which will indicate what work we do and what, what our research is, is about. Well, Tim, thank you so much. Tim, I'll make sure there's a link to everything we talked about in the show notes. Uh, I'd love to get you back to talk about hydration and sports as well. It'll be a great pleasure, Ami. Um, I think that we've got a lot to talk about there as well. So I've really enjoyed this, and thank you for having me on your show. Oh, thank you, Tim. Have a nice day. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. You can find links to everything we talked about in the show notes at bulletproofexec.com. That's like Bulletproof Executive, but short for executive. If you enjoyed this, you can help by leaving a positive ranking for us on iTunes. If this was really useful to you, you could also consider ordering yourself upgrades from our small business sister site at upgradedself.com. Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. 
The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.